0: Welcome to another episode of FOVIA, a podcast on perception, images, and visual media, all from a communication perspective. I'm your host, Dr. Gordon Coonfield. I'm an associate professor of communication at Villanova University. And I am coming at you with another installment in the series, Why We Read, basically a series of extended conversations between Dr. Kathleen Oswald and myself about the text we use in our teaching and research on visual communication. We are going to explore the context, we are going to engage the arguments, and we're going to talk about their value for understanding visual communication. You remember that old nursery rhyme, the one about the sticks and stones and the bones and how the words can never hurt you? Well, we're going to explain why that is absolutely wrong. I'm talking about the ontological consequences of harmful advertising images. So sit yourself back and get ready to focus on ethical issues of global marketing, avoiding bad faith and visual representation.
1: All right. Well, I guess we should start by introducing the article a little bit. And Gordon, if you could let us in on what is bad faith.
0: Oh yes. All right. Bad faith is in a in essence self deception. I am pained by the, the, these moments of anxiety where I I feel. Uh, I feel this sort of profound dread when I think about the essential meaninglessness of life, uh, and I and I confront the fact that I am responsible for making my life meaningful. So, uh, in order to staunch the flow of dread from these sort of wounds that we experience uh, in in these moments of uh, of, of existential anxiety, we. Choose to believe the lie we take the blue pill, and we just choose to believe that that our choices are not our own, that we are not open uh, that we are not free to choose for an example, uh maybe you meet someone you you have an initial attraction to them, but you discover very quickly that you 're incompatible on on some level, but you 're already in the relationship and rather than have a conversation with that person, which is no doubt going to be a painful conversation, uh, especially if that relationship has lasted for a long time, like a marriage of 10 years, for example. Uh, But rather than have that conversation with that person about the truth, which is we are both free to choose and we are therefore free to choose not to be in this relationship. And maybe it would be for the best, if we weren't, because I'm not certain that we are compatible as we once thought we were. Uh, instead of doing that, we deceive ourselves into believing that we have no choice but to remain in this relationship, and uh, that is that is bad faith. Another, we convince ourselves that we have to stay in a job that we loathe because we need the money, and the fact is, you are free to quit that job at any moment and go do something else. You are free to make these choices, but we persuade ourselves. We deceive ourselves by saying, oh, I can't. Does that make sense?
1: Of course it makes sense. And I think (laughs) what we need to do next, though, is say, okay, we've got this really great context. This is like an intrapersonal kind of communicating with self and the stories we tell ourselves context. And then we've got an interpersonal context where maybe... Um, you know, we're, we're interacting with another person, maybe in bad faith, knowingly or, or unknowingly, uh, kind of through a lack of reflection. But then the authors of this article are talking about kind of a mass level of bad faith that's happening through marketing, uh, messaging and advertising. And I want to make sure that we can take that, this concept of bad faith and really help to extend that thinking out into, well, what is bad faith in marketing? So
0: now you're on to it. How do we take bad faith and make of it some sort of um, ethical category for recognizing when we are doing something to another person? First of all, um, the bad faith involves the concretizing of contingent ontological categories. And I think an excellent example of this is one that they bring up in the essay, and that is uh, white supremacy and racism. So we are taking a category, Black people, and uh, it is a purely contingent ontological category. People live under the description of being Black, but that Uh, That is not something that God did or nature did or uh, science did. Uh, In fact, we are 99.9% the same. There's more genetic variation within racial categories than there is between racial categories. So there is no there there other than the fact that we have this this contingent ontological category. And it just so happens that this contingent ontological category uh, is has a very deleterious impact on people who are Black. And it enables us to avoid responsibility for the essential openness of the human project. The fact of the matter is that this is a person, this is a human being uh, to whom the same full range of potential should should be available. Uh, rather than accept the responsibility that I have to this other unique expression of the potential for human existence, I reduce them to a set of stereotypes. And I use that to avoid the discomfort of having to overcome my own limitations, my own limited thinking, my own bad faith uh, and confront this person as a person.
1: But this is the challenge because in marketing and advertising, what you're trying to do is basically relay a message as quickly as possible. So often some type of concretization or essentialization is going to help to tell a message quickly Uh, When I was looking through the article, one of the things that really reminded me of is when Eagleman talks about how seeing works. Uh, We're not really seeing as much as we think we're seeing. Our brain is kind of filling in all these gaps. And these, you know, concretizations, these categorizations and ontologies and and specific stereotypes really do work to fill in that gap uh, to tell a marketing message often um, or an advertising message quickly. So part of the challenge is um, how do you tell a message quickly without resorting to this lazy, sloppy tactic where you are basically using a person or category as a shortcut to accomplish your task?
0: You're, you're absolutely right. I like that idea of it being a shorthand or a shortcut, and uh, and it certainly can be lazy. I use this example to to kind of talk about this in in classes, that, you know, you have a flat character in a police procedural. You know, there's a crime to solve, two cops, two buddies, and they're out trying to solve this crime. For whatever reason, they inevitably end up in a strip club. And the stripper is always a flat character. She's not there to be complicated. Uh, Occasionally, we might find out she's a single mom and she's doing this to raise a kid or you know, whatever, there's some some little backstory there, but they're almost never developed. That's bad face, because the only point of that character is to prop up the masculinity of the other characters in the scene. The cops get to have nice, full, round lives. They get to be complex. They get to have lives outside of work. They get to have complex backstories. You know, those are main characters. These other Characters that are around them are all flat characters. They don't get to have a life. They don't get to be a part of the story. And of course, you could tell their story. And there have been some really great uh, examples of this, um, like telling uh, the the story of oh God, what's his name, Grendel and Beowulf, Beowulf. That's right. Yeah. So telling the story of Beowulf from Grendel's perspective, the perspective of the monster or telling the story of the Wizard of Oz from the perspective of the witch. So that they have the possibility of having stories, they're just not given them. There's not room for them in the narrative of the main character. And I think this is where kind of bad faith maybe comes into these examples, is that if I am living, if I am living with, these contingent ontological categories, white supremacy and racism in my head, there's no room for my, the, my neighbors, my, the people I work with, the people I encounter in places of business, there's no room for them to be anything else. They're stuck being flat in my world. So it's a shame for me, you know, I never get to I never get to be exposed to the rich potential of human existence because I have not left enough room in my head for these other people to be the people that they are. They're stuck being the stereotype I believe them to be. But it also has negative consequences for them, uh, and this connects really good to uh, to Larry Gross's essay, "The Ethics of Misrepresentation," where he points out that the uh, the ability to create images of other people is a form of power when those people can't speak for themselves because they are excluded from that system, that uh, that media system, and when the people, the audience. Uh, does not have direct access to the experience of those people. That's how people come to be flat characters in the first place. I am raised in a society that tends to negatively represent all kinds of people of color, but definitely Black folks. So I that's if I grow up in a community where that's all I see, and I don't have a direct experience with a human person, then that capacity to represent those people is power and is powerful and it has negative consequences for those people. They become subject to these representations. So uh, a policeman or you know, someone with a gun can say, oh, I was afraid, so I pulled my gun and shot him. And they can go to a jury of their peers and Reasonably argue that they were afraid, even though that has absolutely nothing to do with the actual human person. It really is only a test of how deeply invested they are in the stereotype, the typification, the, the contingent ontological categories that they're walking around with in their head if that makes sense.
1: It does. And one of the things that I think we need to talk about and that I I really liked about this article was the examples that they brought in to show what this looks like and the impacts that it can have. So looking at the case of Hawaii and um, using an entire people uh, as a cultural resource and, and as a resource that needs to be maintained and basically regenerated so that we can draw on it for our needs. Um, maybe as a country that's excited to have a little piece of America to, to be tropical in, right? Um, and thinking about, you know, uh, what were some of your early thoughts about what is what is Hawaii? And, you know, the idea that people live there and they have jobs and they go to school is, is a, a little bit of a surprise, maybe, the first time you realize Hawaii is not... Uh, just a tropical paradise um full of beaches and hotels that business is carried out in Hawaii. People work in Hawaii, regular jobs, they go to school, there are universities there. It's it's a place that's more um than its kind of cultural resource as a paradise for the United States and a vacation destination. but that, that takes a little bit of unpacking, and it is a surprise. And I think that's why it's such a great example in this article, is to think, you know, we have this idea about what it is, and you don't feel like you're acting in bad faith to imagine Hawaii in that way. Um, but it's it's been heavily sold to us and marketed to us in this particular way so that we have these understandings. Right. And so when you're in the position to choose images, and and to create messaging, you have a real ethical responsibility um, to make sure you are not concretizing someone else's ontological status uh, in order to make your point. But
0: if we're going to be image producers, what can we do? Or how can we tell when an image is racist, for example? And I I, would say like condition zero is, is it really your place to decide? All right. So I am a cisgendered white man and am I really the person who should be deciding whether a particular representation an image in an ad or a character in a film is racist
1: probably not I, but I i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily say that though i think that you can be one of those people i think that we find that representations get better and they do less to damage people when we bring together more diverse teams in the production of media um, absolutely. So absolutely. I wouldn't if if you are a side gendered white male, please don't change your major. If you want to get into marketing, <laughs> I would like you to be in marketing. I think it's important for us all to, to work together and have an appreciation and understanding of one another. But really, so many of these gaps that you see in marketing and public relations and advertising can be easily avoided by having a more diverse set of perspectives, so that means, absolutely you know bringing the whole team together, benefiting from difference because you really get a lot of value added when you bring difference into the equation. You know, also it's the right thing to do. But if somebody isn't really that concerned about the right thing, it's also the financially advantageous thing to do. So that doesn't sell you nothing, will? And like really, the representation of of female characters in the media, in advertising, um, has gotten in some cases a lot better or, you know, female characters have become less, uh, you know, of background characters. Like I'm sure a lot of our listeners have probably watched Stranger Things. Um, the mom in that show is just phenomenal. I mean, she is fantastic. Um, so you see some really great, uh, well-developed female characters in in shows, female-produced media shows like Working Moms or The Letdown or Dead to Me, um, and right. some of these other things that are coming out. So having more folks involved in the production of media is going to give us more opportunities to not take these lazy shortcuts um, and rely on stereotypes and tropes. But there's one uh, there's one example that I use in my class that I wanted to talk to you about Gordon and ask our listeners to think about. Um, And this is when I ask you, what does a professor look like? And don't tell me the answer that you think (laughs) is the right answer. I want you to tell me the answer. That is the answer you honestly feel. What does a professor look like? Go.
0: That's tough because I have a rich catalog of complex characters to draw on and make in my understanding of what type of person might be a professor so that's i feel like that's that's a tough one for me
1: that's i know
0: what they're i know what they're supposed to that's a that's a professor answer um so but I could tell you what I think a professor is supposed to look like if they're going to be in a movie or a film or a television show.
1: Or uh, if you want the data, you could also do a Google Images search and tell me what you think that you would see in the top results.
0: I suspect that they are going to be male. I expect. I suspect they will be white. Uh, I suspect they will be middle-aged. And by that, I mean somewhere between the age of, I guess, 40 and 60. Is that middle age? I don't really know anymore. They keep moving the line on it. Uh, What else? Probably heterosexual. What
1: about the tweed jacket?
0: Oh, yeah. I didn't get into the wardrobe. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, the jacket with the elbow patches. And back in the day, they always had a pipe. Glasses. Oh, I forgot the glasses. They got to be wearing glasses.
1: Yeah. Some of them, some of them. And actually Indiana Jones comes up, which that was as a child. When I thought of a professor, I thought Indiana Jones, he's doing field work like all the time. Right. And I want
0: to take a class from Han Solo.
1: Yeah. That would be awesome. So let's flip this a little bit. When I say teacher, what do you see?
0: Yeah. Young, white, female, very patient, good with kids. Fresh out of really. college. Yeah. Yeah. Fresh out of college. Um, not maybe I was going to say naive, but I don't think that's a innocent in the sense of just like really positive and bubbly. And I don't know what they're wearing these days.
1: Something, something fashionable, but yes. you know, but not too fashionable. Right. But if you do the images search, that's basically <laughs> what you're going to see, right? Leave your safe search on guys when you do these searches. Um, but yeah, you're going to see maybe there will be a teacher of color. You'll see like a young, uh, you know, African-American teacher in a classroom full of children. Usually you see the hands up in the pictures, um, writing on the board, always smiling. So so this is kind of where I get into this, this concept of, you know, the images influence the way that we think about things uh, and our cultural you know, expectations kind of fuel the images that get used in these different contexts. But where I, I see this being a little bit of bad faith and a little bit sticky is when you walk into the classroom, Gordon fits the mold of the cool professor, absolutely, and I, I'm not even saying that just to be nice and saying it because it's a fact. <laughs> so it's a pretty easy sell. Um, if people don't call you Gordon, I bet they call you Dr. Coonfield.
0: They do, Yeah.
1: Do you get called Mr. Coonfield? Never. Well, can I tell you something, Gordon?
0: You get called Mrs. Oswald all the time.
1: Not all the time, but some of the time. My students will very rarely call me by my first name, even though I think it's totally cool. I say, call me Kathy, call me Dr. Oswald, call me Dr. O. So a lot of students would call me Dr. O. But if they don't, every once in a while, I will get a Mrs. Oswald. I can see this ethics of representation when Gordon walks into the classroom, he's a professor. And when I walk into the classroom, I'm a teacher until I prove, right. That I'm the exception to the rule in this concretized category um, and kind of show, right. That, that I actually am not a teacher, but this is a little bit of ice skating uphill that I'm going to have to do just because of these concretized ontological categories.
0: You are walking into not just a classroom but you're walking into a cloud of stereotypes and you have to now spend time and energy and make a lot of like real life decisions I'm sure uh, about what you're going to wear how you're going to present yourself how you're going to speak how you're going to deal with people who uh, push back against your authority like all of these things are all now extra work that you have to do in order to do the same job that I do
1: and that's just a fact of life that is an ugly fact of life and that is why bad faith sucks And that's why when all of you guys go out into the world and you're in the position to make decisions, to choose images, to tell a story, make sure that you're not (laughs) taking this lazy move of using a stereotype to quickly tell a message. You are gonna learn enough other things when you study visual communication that will help you tell a story in a way that you do not have to use a stereotype uh, to get your point across. I encourage you to get clever and to think outside the box because the world is changing. And that's in a large part because of the people who have gone out um, into their professions and made the decision to be responsible producers of media.
0: Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having this conversation with me.
0: <laughs> and while we're fighting to outthink one another, let me thank you for listening to this podcast. You can check us out on an Apple Podcast, on Spotify, probably some other places. I look forward to focusing with you again.